Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Episode 48 of Americans Watching the Footy. I am Benjamin Castle. I am Ethan Castle. And boy, am I happy to be in a house that has chairs again. If you recall, past two episodes, I was up in Oregon, enjoying the World Athletics Championships with my dad, our dad, and yeah, the Airbnb in which we were staying, about 30 minutes out of Eugene, did not have any chairs in it. It was this tiny place, three rooms, including the combo bathroom laundry room, and no chairs to be found. That said, we did have to modify the setup back here in South San Francisco, as normally I'm able to kind of use my bed as a chair, but after about 23 years of service, my wooden bed frame gave out. I had been saying for weeks while we were recording that his bed was making noises and that it sounded like it was breaking. And yeah, you told me before last episode or two episodes ago, as we were starting the call, just like, uh, you were right. Yeah, it's funny. I had told people like that day, like, hey, I might need to start looking for either to repair this bed frame or start looking for a new one. And then like less than an hour after that, <clears throat> it gave out. No one was injured. Not even your pride? No, it gave it all it had. 23 years of service. We salute you. There's been talk about round 19 perhaps being the best round of the season so far. I think you could argue for rounds one and three as well, but this round did have a little bit of everything and really only a couple games that weren't compelling, at least into the third quarter. I tried to figure out how to summarize things, and I did kind of a countdown tweet. You can see this on our Twitter account, at Americans Footy. I wrote, 10 things to summarize round 19. Nine games, eight straight lines, Q clash wins, seven meaningless North fourth quarter goals, six teams scored 100 or more, five teams who led a three-quarter time didn't win, Four games decided by two goals or less. Three positions in the eight changed. Two points for a draw. One after a siren goal. Zero ways to fully comprehend a what the fuck was that round. And the what the fuckery started right away with our first draw of the season. That's right. Richmond 7-10-52. Fremantle 7-10-52. In America, there's this expression. I don't know if it's ever used in Australia, but people say a tie is a lot like kissing your sister. And... I've always interpreted that as hopefully you have a sexy sister. Roll Tide. Also, here we go Steelers, I guess. Once again, the Tigers could not close a game out, this time against a lackluster Dockers team that got off to a decent start and then just didn't do much. This was kind of a slow slog of a game that fortunately, because of the lack of scoring, moved along pretty quickly. The two things that people are going to remember about this game happened in the final minutes. Noah Balta was going to take a kick from, with his run-up, probably a little bit outside 50, with maybe a minute to go, tied at 52, and 
he took the full 30 seconds, and then as he started his run-up after the 30 seconds ended, Michael Frederick, who really hasn't played all that well lately, came in and managed to smother the kick and make sure it didn't even get into the forward 50. Important to note that play on was called once the 30 expired and he hadn't started his run-up, and it appeared to be the right call. It was... A terrific play by Frederick. And he'd had an otherwise lackluster night, which was a disappointment after some coverage had been focused on him pregame. Seven had been discussing him a bit. His story, the fact that he had just signed a four-year extension earlier in the day, which was very welcome news, kind of saved his ass with that play and ended up saving Fremantle two points, along with Noah Cumberland playing on after a mark was taken at the siren or maybe the mark was taken after the siren anyway and it wouldn't have mattered? No, the mark was definitely not taken after the siren. I thought it was taken within the siren as well, but debate has continued since. There's also been debate over whether or not the league should have ties and if they should have some sort of overtime rule, and I'm actually fine with ties in the regular season, which is very un-American, I know, but I think it's fine because they're as rare as they are. I kind of feel the same way about the NFL, although I hate that the NFL reduced their overtime from 15 minutes to 10, but that's a separate argument entirely. I think every now and then, neither team deserves to win a game. And this was one of those occasions. And I don't think we need to force a winner. And when that happens, you shouldn't mess up anything in terms of how many points are given. You still need to give four points for the game, so split it up. It's one of the things that I really dislike about the NHL, our ice hockey league, is that overtime games are worth three points because one point also goes to the team that loses in overtime, whereas regulation games is just two points to the winner. European hockey leagues don't have that problem. The Olympics don't have that problem. It's three points for a regulation win there. One way or another, you need to keep every regular season game at the same point value. If you're not familiar, basically... In a lot of hockey leagues, it's three points for a regulation win, two for an overtime win, one for an overtime loss. And in the NHL, it's two for a win, whether it's regulation or overtime. So, like, for example, if two teams in your division play an overtime game, that hurts you because both teams end up getting points. So if there was an overtime system, it would need to be something like three points for an overtime win, one point for an overtime loss, and two points for a draw. But... Yeah, I'm fine with the tie in this case. As am I. Again, I don't think either team deserved to really win this game. If Fremantle had a saving grace other than Richmond's ineptitude, it was the defensive play of Hayden Young, who rightfully got 10 coaches' votes. A strong mark making good on the contest that he had, disrupting some of Richmond's better passages. He's not a player that I thought much of before the season, just because we hadn't really thought about Fremantle's defense by and large. But I was impressed with the work that he did. If I recall correctly, he also received the three votes for the Golden Fist on Bounce. Bang. He's someone I've really liked between his marking ability, his positioning, he moves the ball well. That said, the Dockers' issues in this game were definitely offensive. There was a lot of talk about how much they missed Rory Lobb and how they were basically unable to mark inside 50. But... I don't think it's just Lobb's absence that hurt them. I think it was the combination of missing Lobb and Sam Switkowski, even though they're two completely different players. I think if you have one or the other, you at least have something you can go to, even if it makes you kind of one-dimensional. Not having your best goal sneak and not having your best marker in the forward 50 really added up. And in fact, there were no points scored in the 
final seven minutes and 58 seconds for either team. After a Bailey Banfield goal with 7.58 left, and really between there and Balta's chance, there wasn't a whole lot in either forward 50. It was a lot of play just kind of grinding it out in the midfield. And this was a grinded out type of game. And in some ways, I'd say credit to Frio for salvaging something out of a night where they didn't play very well. But also that sort of form is not going to be what they are looking for if they want to make any sort of finals run. Fortunately, they have time to get it right. They have time to get healthy. I do think Griffin Logue had another pretty good game. He actually slid forward and got the opening goal of the game. Frio had a quick 12 to 1 lead and they were up 19 to 8 midway through the first quarter and then really struggled to score from there. And from the Richmond side of things, it's funny because early in that game, I had been saying a bunch of good things about Noah Cumberland, saying, you know, they've been sloppy as a team lately, but he's been smooth. He looks ready for the challenge. He looks polished. And yeah, he made a rookie mistake at the end of the game, but he has definitely been a bright spot. Also, Tyler Sanzi got his first career goal. He was taking a couple cheap shots at Caleb Strong, but I like how he plays. And I like this young generation from Richmond. And I still think, big picture, this has been a pretty good year for the Tigers in that they're bridging the gap nicely between the young and old and setting themselves up for future success. But at the same time, in the short term, this is a team that should have had 12 points in their last three games, and they have two. And now they sit outside the eight. I was going to say welcome back Ninthmond, but then I just remembered they're Tenthmond thanks to St. Kilda. The Tigers have now lost six and drawn one game that they've led at some time in the fourth quarter, and they're 0-4-1 in games decided by seven points or fewer. Some of those things can be chalked up to luck. I think, as I said last week when we were breaking down their loss to North, the Geelong game, they just got beat. And if there was anything they could have done differently, it would have been get out of the gate faster. Against Gold Coast, they kicked poorly. Against North, they both broke down and kicked poorly. This one was kind of a combination of those things again. And for another fun draw fact, Richmond were involved in the last draw as well. You may remember the closing round last year. They drew with Hawthorne 12-11-83 apiece in the finale for Alistair Clarkson and Sean Burgoyne. Stats a note for Richmond in this weird Friday two-point affair. Dion Presti with 30 disposals, 8 clearances, and 7 score involvements. This is the season where I've really started to understand his importance to Richmond. Our eyes, of course, have been on Dusty since the beginning because every broadcaster seems to fawn over him. But without him, and just paying more attention to immediate battles at stoppages, I've been noticing Dion Presti a lot more. Nick Flostone, 23 disposals, 8 intercepts, 6 marks, and 6 tackles. Dylan Grimes with 17 disposals and 8 intercepts. Camden McIntosh also did a nice job. A goal, 16 touches, 6 marks, and 6 tackles. As we mentioned, big game for Hayden Young. 31 disposals, 14 marks, and 10 intercepts. Andrew Brayshaw kicked two behinds, finished with 28 disposals, 9 score involvements, and 7 tackles. Will Brody a goal and 26 disposals. Jordan Clark a behind, 24 disposals, 7 marks. Luke Ryan, 24 disposals, 11 marks, 6 tackles. James A. Chagall, 23 disposals, 8 marks. And Blake Akers, 22 disposals, 491 meters gained. A very effective return for him. I do want to note one negative individual performer for Frio. Brandon Walker has struggled to kick out of defense lately and just hasn't stopped that many passages in general. If there's a weak link there that could find himself omitted, he would definitely be a candidate for that as other players return to hell. The other one that 
people are questioning, myself included, is Liam Henry, who was included ahead of Travis Collier. Don't think he did anything to warrant that continuing, as much as I like watching him. I hope Nathan O'Driscoll gets elevated from rehabbing in the waffle, especially with a big matchup on the wing looming in Ad Langdon as the Demons come out to Perth for a Friday night matchup. Hopefully by then, as opposed to the final game of this past round, the field will be in much better condition. Also of note, to fit with the theme of Richmond sloppiness, their disposal efficiency was a hair under 70% for the game, though the Dockers ended up turning it over more, 71 times to 62. It feels more like a game Richmond pissed away, but I can't say Frio deserved to win either, so more than fine with seeing a draw here. Some teams know how to win games. Right now, Richmond is not one of those teams. Well, the rest of the way for them is hosting Brisbane, Atport, Hawthorne, and Essendon. Those next two games, not really liking their chances. The good news for them is that the MCG has been a house of horrors for the Lions. We'll talk about that more in our round 20 preview. But for now, we're going to move on. But quickly wanted to also mention the end of the career of one Kane Lambert, who is retiring. He's had some major hip problems. Fun player to watch over the years. And we wish him very well. A one-time All-Australian, consistent, good performer in their best and fairest, and like our man Alistair Lynch, a three-time Premiership player. Two games ran concurrently to open up Saturday, and the first one I was in charge of covering and might be our quickest recap of the year. Bet. North Melbourne, 11-9-75, defeated by Hawthorne, 19-7-121. This game was pretty much over after a 49-3 first quarter where the Hawks were able to slice through the North midfield like nothing I've ever seen. It wasn't just a couple of guys getting loose or leaking out behind. It was really the entire team. They were able to basically bring the whole midfield and defense forward without any repercussions because the only time anyone would threaten to take possession away from them would be a Ben Mackay interception, and he's the last line of defense. He's a good player, don't get me wrong, but... If he's your only threat to stop them, again, there's nothing stopping Hawthorne from an all-out attack because they don't have to worry about sending the cavalry back in reverse because they all of a sudden got picked off in midfield. And in terms of what they could send back, Nick Larky wasn't in this game. His heel injury that had been worrying him and the team since last round caused him to be a late out. And Jai Simkin, one of their most important movers, was extremely limited because of Finn McGinnis putting a really good tag on his assigned player for the second straight week. Last week, it was Tim Kelly. I will note that after the first quarter, North played a much more respectable game, at least on the offensive side, though their inability to kick straight until the fourth quarter hindered them from ever making a real push. It's funny because they're actually pretty good at moving the ball inside the forward 50. It just has to get there first. And when they did move it inside the forward 50, a lot of times it was spoiled by a crappy kick at the end. For Hawthorne, the real story, though, was the return of Jack Gunston, missed the last couple games after his father's passing. And he actually hasn't strung together consecutive games since rounds one through nine. He scored the first goal a little over more than four minutes in and finished the game with five goals and four behinds. It was definitely the heartwarming story of the day. I had said after the win over Richmond that I just hoped North would play competitively in three of their six games under Lee Adams before season's end. Richmond was one of those. Now they just need to do it in two of their remaining four. I'd like to see them put up more of a fight defensively. I will note that Jaden Stevenson fits into Lee Adams' system so much better. Even though his numbers for this game didn't end up huge, he's just so much more actively involved. And 
it's nice to see him finally channeling the talent he has because we know he is a top-level player. Also want to mention, no Chankoth Jeff for the Hawks, but it was hardly a problem considering they didn't have to defend all that much until the fourth quarter. And the aforementioned Nick Larkey absence. With that, stats of note for the Hawks, Tom Mitchell, a goal, 32 disposals, 10 score involvements, and 7 marks. Newcomb, two goals of a high, 30 disposals, nine clearances, 580 meters gained. One of his stronger performances. Dylan Moore didn't kick a goal, but had 25 disposals and seven tackles. And he's finding ways to make himself useful outside of the goal mouth and outside of the forward 50. Really important development in his game. James Sicily, 24 disposals, 583 meters gained. Blake Hardwick, 23 disposals, nine intercepts, seven marks. Gunston not only kicking 5-4, but finishing with 17 disposals and 7 marks. For North, it's no surprise that two of the biggest stack guys, and the biggest in terms of disposals, were Luke Davies-Uniak and Aaron Hall. They had 30 apiece. Davies-Uniak also with 6 clearances and 2 goals. Aaron Hall kicked 0-1 and a whole lot of 7s here in his stats. Don't know if he went to the casino or anything like that, but 7 intercepts, 7 marks, 7 turnovers, and 745 meters gained, which... I mean, come on. He's gained well over 1,100 one time. Step it up, man. I do want to mention, despite his good numbers, I wasn't super impressed by his performance. I thought he struggled a lot, especially with marking, and he was part of the reason they got victimized for eight goals in the first quarter. Aiden Core was also definitely at fault for a couple of those, but this was a pretty poor game for every North defender not named Ben McKay. Paul's stats might be the emptiest stats of any player in the league, Bailey Scott with 26 disposals has been noticing him more and more positively. Jack Zeeble kicking 3-1 in a 20-touch day. Nine score involvements at seven marks. Ben McKay with 17 disposals, 12 intercepts, and 10 marks, eight of which were intercept marks. Those big numbers mostly mean North were challenged a lot, and he had to step up a whole lot. And it reflects in the inside 50 numbers because it was plus 30 to Hawthorne, 68-38. to One other player I want to mention before we move on to the game on which I focused in this early portion of Saturday, is Ned Reeves, because I liked some of his development as a Ruckman with Ben McAvoy out for a while. He was thrown into the fire in that regard and learned there the hard way. But since Big Boy's been back, he's been showing really well as a tall half forward. Was expecting him to be further down the ground, but where he is still patrolling that middle third somewhat, he's carving out a niche there. I like him a lot, and I do want to end on a positive note for North. I think Flynn Perez is starting to develop nicely as well. So while that game and Sydney and Adelaide were starting, my dad and I were at this really good pizza place in Eugene called Sizzle Pie. Ethan had recommended it to us, and I had also gotten it recommended to me by one of my friends who's studying at the University of Oregon. Thank you, George. Gave me a couple really good recommendations, actually. But... I just opened up the AFL app, seen what it was like, and really didn't think I would have anything to talk about for either of these games. But after the first quarter between the Swans and the Crows, it definitely did even out somewhat. Coming into this game, I was excited to see what Jordan Dawson would do in his revenge game. Started out playing in the middle. Ryan Clark was tagging him and did a good job again. So many teams lack a solid tagger and hadn't seen it in Sydney until Clark had come along these past couple weeks. Unfortunately for him, the tag didn't last too long because Dawson was moved to half-board starting in the second quarter, and that was more than necessary after the Swans kicked nine goals to two in the first, 
and led by 42. It was 57 to 15. Sydney had really good pressure from the beginning. Buddy Franklin with four tackles by the middle of the first quarter. Never something that I really noticed from him before. The Swans' ninth and final goal of the first quarter was Buddy's 1,031st, a snap goal that put him level with Gary Ablett Sr. for fifth all-time. Buddy ended up passing God, if you want to call him that with how crazy he's gotten, late in the third quarter and then added another for good measure in the fourth. But overall, it was a much more level game from the second quarter onward. Sam Barry was an important part of that, doing more than just being a strong tackler, though he was definitely noticeable in that regard as well. Kicked two goals in a row late in the second quarter after the Crows were getting numbers to the contest. A couple nifty plays from Jake Saligo in there, actually managing to get past Patty McCartan, who was exposed a couple times in one-on-one work on the ground. He's definitely stronger in the air than he is on the ground, while Tom is more of the reverse. Crows narrowly won the second quarter and then also won the third. It was 92-64, so just a 28-point game after three-quarter time, with Jordan Dawson getting a return game goal. A couple notable plays in the fourth quarter with a lot of M's shining for Adelaide, those being Ned McHenry, Lachlan Murphy, and Wayne Millera, who I've really enjoyed watching this season. We hadn't really seen him at all, I would say, before this year because he had only played rounds one and two in 2020, was out of all of 2021 injured. The most I saw of him was anytime I would play for or against the Crows on AFL Evolution 2. You were probably wondering, who the hell is this guy? I mean, I had figured out that he was one of their better midfielders. And Miller is only 24th, so he's still on the younger side, along with those other M's, Saligo, Barry. There were a lot of younger pieces that shone for Adelaide. And remember, they're still without Josh Rochelle. Riley Philthorpe stayed in the action, although he wasn't playing at his very best. Encouraging signs for the Crows beyond the first quarter, whereas for the Swans, it kind of leveled out, but no matter, they still won by 33, 17-16, 118, to Adelaide 12-13-85. The Swans were well out hit. Riley O'Brien had a field day in the ruck. Hitouts went to the Crows 61-38, but the Swans were plus six in clearances and plus 11 from stoppages. Turned that into many more possessions, a lot more open space. Outmarking them pretty much everywhere. We're closer to tripling them in March than they were doubling them. 91 to 35 is one of the most lopsided mark totals we've seen in our three years watching this game. In terms of game-long positives for the Swans, a lot of individual things, but I did also like seeing Sydney's defense being active in creating goals. It's something that we'd missed for a while. So connections from their back lines had been missing. You could count on the McCartans and Dane Rampey to stop possessions, but they weren't as reliable really creating opportunities going forward. Luke Parker, 29 disposals and 12 tackles. Callum Mills, a goal and 27 disposals. Nick Blakey, another big game, 26 disposals, 8 intercepts, 7 marks, 618 meters. I love that I was on the Nick Blakey hype train before a lot of people were. Had a big tackle that prevented a surefire goal for Ned McHenry and maybe kept the dam from breaking in the middle of the third quarter. It would have been just a 15-point game had the goal gone. And then he also did work against Miller to prevent a closer run to goal. So whenever he gets around the ball, not just when he has the ball in hand, he's that good things happen player. You know, I'm really glad I noticed, not from a standpoint of, of like a hipster thing, but from a standpoint of this means I have some sort of idea of what I'm talking about. So I'm pretty satisfied with that. 
James Robottom behind 26 disposals, 8 tackles. Robbie Fox starting to establish himself. He had 25 disposals, 8 marks, and 7 intercepts. Dylan Stevens, a goal, 25 disposals, 8 intercepts. A lot of big stat hauls in this game for the Swans. Chad Warner, a goal, 25 disposals, 8 tackles, 535 meters gained. Just about average for him. I can completely see why people expect him to win a Brownlow within anywhere between three to five years. And as I said last round, he's creating opportunities for other players even more than he is for himself. And with the depth the Swans have, they seize those opportunities he's willing to generate. Tom Papley starting to round back into form. Two goals, two behinds, 22 disposals, 12 score involvements. And Isaac Heaney, two goals, two behinds, 15 disposals, and an octopus. Not usually a guy I would expect to be a big tackler, but these Sydney forwards, not just Franklin and Reed, but up and down the group, have better tackling ability than you'd expect. And that's another thing that he's a for and that's another thing that he's and that's another thing that Warner's progression has afforded him to do, be more willing to make those plays without the ball in hand. For Adelaide, the big stats, Rory Laird with a big day, 1-1 on 38 disposals, 11 clearances, 7 intercepts, 7 score involvements, 6 tackles, gained 848 meters. Here's the problem, 13 turnovers. Adelaide's play went through him for better or for worse, and oftentimes, especially early, it was for worse. Sam Berry, meanwhile, was pretty much always a positive, kicked 2 goals, 24 disposals, 14 tackles, 7 clearances, and 7 score involvements. Had he started with his tackling earlier, be right up there with Matt Rowe for the league lead. Ben Keyes, 22 disposals, 12 tackles, and 7 clearances. And former Swan and Showdown 51 hero Jordan Dawson, 1-1, 20 disposals, 7 tackles, 602 meters gained. That's a whole lot of ground gain for someone who played at half forward for about three quarters of the contest. Jordan Butts was notable in defense with his 10 intercept possessions. But the Crows had a lot of missed opportunities. The lack of marks tells a lot of that story. 39.7% efficiency inside 50 certainly is not strong. Meanwhile, Sydney were operating at 58.3% there. Unlike in economics, when it comes to footy, marks is a good thing. I've begun to realize that inside 50 efficiency is one of the most illuminating stats in terms of how a team really played within the confines of a single game. If a team won by a lot, despite having low efficiency... It means that they left a lot of opportunities on the board. Here for Adelaide, where they lost this game by six goals, you could tell that their low efficiency hampered their ability to be in the game even when they were playing better otherwise. I was catching up a bit, having come back from Eugene, decent drive, and I'm prone to getting carsick, so wasn't watching while we were driving. And honestly, the reception through that part of Interstate 5 isn't great. But I was still paying attention, of course, to Port Adelaide and Geelong. I had circled that game for a while, even when Port weren't playing at their best, because rounds two and four aside, their first two home games this year, Port tend to lift at least a little when they're at home. And they certainly did in this one. After losing momentum in the second quarter, they more than clawed their way back into it, no pun intended, with, you know, Geelong's feline mascot in the third quarter. But to give you the full picture of this one, I'm going to turn it over to our resident Cats fan. Nine in a row, first place all alone on the ladder, and once again, I still don't think they've hit their peak. This team can still play a lot better, but right now, this is a team that knows how to win games, and this one can be chalked up to the ABC combo. Atkins, Buse, close. Tom Atkins, slow for the first three quarters, monster tackler in the fourth, 
Jed Bues, fundamentally outstanding, had a couple of key intercepts down the stretch. And Brad Close didn't have a ton of touches, but ended up racking up seven tackles in a goal. And as I've said every week, when he gets involved, good things happen. Let him run around. He can chase guys down, give him the ball, and he'll create action offensively. He's a stud. This was such a ridiculous game of back-and-forth sequences. Port Adelaide had all the energy and all the momentum to start, and the Cats were lucky to not give up more than the first two goals. They were very fortunate to get out of the first quarter with a four-point lead. And considering how much time the power spent in the forward 50, this is a credit to Geelong's defense for standing tall. This whole defensive unit has been so strong all year. And this was, once again, without Tom Stewart. They won all four games while he was suspended. They're 5-0 without him. And they won the game that he got subbed out of with concussion. Obviously, that's not to assert that they play better without him. They're much better with him. When he's out, then Jack Henry has to kind of go into a one-on-one matchup role that doesn't really suit him. Henry's much better roaming around, taking marks, sometimes taking marks in the forward half. He didn't have a dramatic one in the goal square like he did against Richmond, but he did have a late one at the edge of 50. It didn't end up turning into a score, but it was a significant play nonetheless because it showed his versatility, which has kind of been hindered when Stewart hasn't been out there. But this was a total team win. The second quarter was masterful. They outscored Port Adelaide 38-8, to including a really, really bad turnover to close the half by Ryan Burton that gave Isaac Smith an intercept right before the siren, like a second before the siren. And he cashed in and you thought at that point, all right, Port Adelaide are broken. They're done. They're finished. They know their season's over. Get through the first few minutes of the third quarter to make sure that there's no fight back. And this game's done. And introducing Sam Powell Pepper, because... Even though they didn't win, he kind of had that sort of Greg Jennings type deal where he put the team on his back and elevated them with not just his willingness to get into contests, get his head over the ball, but finish the job himself as well a lot of the time. I love the way he plays. He's not a conventional build for an AFL player, and he finds a way to make his kind of unusual combination of skills work. You've commented that He doesn't play like he's a first-round selection, even though that's exactly what he was back in 2016. And holy cow, does he look different from a few years ago. It's not just the lack of hair. It's that he's definitely bulked up in a good way. He plays like a guy who's scrapping for a roster spot every week and is getting by not on talent, but on just wanting it more than anybody else. But he also does have pretty good talent. The power got right into the forward 50 to start the third quarter. Jack Henry tipping a ball through for a behind. Powell Pepper scored less than two minutes later. Charlie Dixon started winning one-on-ones with Sam DeConing. This was a fun back and forth where Dixon is one of the few guys who was able to get the upper hand on DeConing, one of the few who could match up with him physically. And I was surprised. He was talking a lot of shit even when the power were trailing. But it seemed like one of those moments, either he's really going to regret this or... He's fueling his team, and I don't think he regretted it because he did well one-on-one, and they did manage to come all the way back. Miss Georgiata scored just 21 seconds later, and it was a 15-point game with more than 16 minutes left in the third quarter. Remember, Georgiata's had an injury scare close to halftime where it looked like he had really badly rolled his ankle. guess that's a theme in a couple games this week. 
ankles that looked really badly rolled ended up not really mattering, foreshadowing for the Carlton game. Reese Stanley left injured with a knee injury that they said is medium term, so I don't know if that means a month or less. I think it can completely shut down the speculation that Shannon Neal was going to be the injury sub because they knew something was up with Stanley. I mean, maybe they noticed he wasn't 100% right in warmups, but it's not like they would have put him out there if they had known he'd have an injury that would keep him out for, you know, two, three weeks minimum. Plus, Neal is more naturally a full forward than a Ruckman. I'm more thinking along the Chris Fagan logic from a few weeks back when Fagan put Darcy Ford as his sub in the respect of which player or from which player group can we not afford to lose. And with how Port had been able to go with their no true ruck setup and win balls off those immediate contests, with Dixon filling in admirably, he's definitely more of a key forward, but physically he can match up with any ruckman and he can sometimes grab balls straight out of the air. And Jeremy Finlayson with a big third quarter as well, not necessarily doing the ruck work because Dixon was, but be able to do more at half forward and a bit of full forward as a result. Finally being let loose after having to struggle to get into the side at about the one-third mark of the season and then being put into a whole lot of ruck duty as of late. The power were dominating clearances in that third quarter and Finlayson was a huge part of that. Geelong did get a counterattacking goal just a couple minutes later from Tyson Stengel on the run from 50. By the way, he had a bunch of his family in attendance, including Tariq Newchurch of the Crows, who actually was even wearing a cat's scarf. I guess that's totally acceptable. Whereas, like, if, say, you're a baseball player going to watch your sibling play and he plays on another team, you're not putting on another team's gear. I guess it's just a cultural difference. Thought it was interesting. The Power then scored the next 18 points as Dixon overwhelmed Neal and set up a Robbie Gray goal. Brian Myers, who had a mostly good game, had a turnover that led to Jed McEntee's first career goal. Then DeConing got called for tunneling on Todd Marshall, making it two goals in 43 seconds. Stengel and Myers kicked behinds at the other end to stretch the lead back to six, but DeConing held Dixon. The Power tied it with a little under three minutes left in the third quarter and then took their first lead since the opening frame when they had numbers, got DeConing out of position, and set up Travis Boak for the go-ahead goal. That was one of Charlie Dixon's craftier moments in that one-on-one matchup. Geelong went to the fourth down by seven, and frankly, at that point, you think, all right, they're probably going to drop this one. It's going to be frustrating considering they led by 34, but also they had margin for error, and this streak was going to end eventually. Not today, bitches. Mark Blitzovs got put into the center bounce instead of Shannon Neal, and it worked well. He won the opening clearance, and Jeremy Cameron scored from a tough angle just 16 seconds into that last quarter. Behinds by Hawkins and Atkins gave the Cats the lead. Then Jed Buse made a great play to get a kick away under heavy pressure from Ollie Wines to set up a Stengel goal. Leading by five with about 10 minutes left, Patrick Dangerfield slid for a ball in the goal square. I thought it had been tipped through by Alir Alir, which was what it was called initially, but there was no review, which I think is pretty messed up. I don't think there was enough evidence to overturn it, but I think you got to look at that. That's just poor form by the officials, and normally they're very good about reviewing anything that's even remotely worthy of a review. That wasn't the case this time. It was almost like they were so confused as to what had just happened. They were just like, uh... Do we review? Uh, oh, they started playing again. Shit. 
we probably messed up. Shortly thereafter, Todd Marshall faked out Zach Tui, found Carl Amon for the goal to tie it. Wow, Carl Amon kicking straight for goal. It had, Dixon had mostly gotten the better of DeConing up until that point, but DeConing was able to get in for a last-second fist to prevent a Dixon mark. Bang. Leading to a throw-in and Powell Pepper giving the power of the lead again, but with only a behind. One-point game, 8.20 left. It had been a largely quiet game for Cam Guthrie, but he made a chase-down tackle on O'Lear, O'Lear of all people. That set up Mitch Duncan for a behind to tie it with 5.11 left. Then Brad Close got involved because good things happen when he touches the ball. He set up Tom Hawkins for the go-ahead goal with 4.01 left. Hawkins then drew a high tackle on Ollie Wines that the home crowd didn't like. He scored from 52, so if you're a believer that ball don't lie, good call, because he scored. Then a Jed Buse intercept really sealed the game and capped off a win that I thought there was no way they could win a game like this for the second time in five weeks. It was a very similar flow to the Richmond game, with the exception of Port Adelaide being the one to come out of the gate hot, but... Same deal with the Cats leading big early, giving up the lead, and finding a way to tough it out. And I think it just shows you there's something different about this team. They're able to withstand situations where the pressure should be too much for them. And I think that can be chalked up to mental toughness, depth, such as having Max Holmes along the wing. Even though he didn't have a huge game stat-wise, he forced play into the middle of the ground. And guys like Tom Atkins that step up when the pressure's on instead of wither when you've got thousands of people yelling at you and a team fighting against you with their season on the line. And that's the sort of stuff you're going to need if you're going to go the whole way. Port Adelaide, 14-10-94, defeated by Geelong, 16-10-106 at the end of it all. The Cats are a game and percentage clear atop the ladder. More on why they're a game clear in a little bit, but I was impressed by Geelong's defensive stands late, how Sam DeConing was able to get even again in that matchup with Dixon. It may not have been his best defensive game, but I think it was his most mature effort yet. And like you said, it wasn't just the high-end guys that ended up winning it for him late, though it did keep them from crashing and burning early, and though Hawkins did have the final couple goals. Amazing to think that Hawkins' second half of his career may be better than the first half. He's a player who you can clearly see continuing to learn on the fly, eager to add more to his game, get on the right side of matchups. Say what you want about what, in American football, we may term illegal use of hands that some people may want called. I don't know how much of that is warranted, how much of that we're ignoring because of Ethan's cat slant and my slight cat slant because of proximity. But regardless, Hawkins is one of the most complete forwards in the game and is able to set up goals as well as he does score them himself. And having a guy like Cameron there as well does wonders for him. Oh yeah, and Brian Myers scored his seventh goal of the year. Myers had a goal of a behind and 20 disposals. Zach Tui, 27 disposals. He did commit 11 turnovers, gained 713 meters. Tom Atkins, unremarkable for three quarters and really turned it on down the stretch. He finished with a behind, 24 disposals, seven intercepts and seven tackles. Brad Close, a goal, 15 disposals, 7 tackles. Tom Hawkins kicked 4 straight with 11 score involvements. Again, the combination of high-end talent and depth guys stepping up when needed is the sort of thing you need to win a championship in any sport, you know? You're not going to get there on depth guys and grit alone, and you're not going to get there on high-end talent alone. You need both, and you need mental toughness, and these guys have that right now. 
I honestly like that way to think of it a lot more than the whole offense wins games, defense wins championships things. That's another phrase borrowed from American football that has been applied to a whole host of sports. And while I could see its worth in a lot of them, including Australian rules football, I like that high end versus depth thing a lot better. You look at any team that wins a championship in any sport, they have high end talent. No team is going to win a championship without some top level players. And that kind of provides your foundation and can bail you out when things aren't going so well. And then you need the depth guys to step up in those clutch moments. And that's what's been happening lately. Port had the more impressive stat halls in this game. Carl Amon, a guy with a lot of focus in terms of trade rumors and kicking and accuracy, but kicked an important goal in this one. 25 disposals, 13 marks, and 606 meters gained for him. That half-forward spot still does suit him. Brian Myers did a good job matched up with him to prevent him from taking over. It was also first time ever I've ever seen Myers get into like little scraps before and after plays. Not a lot there, but he's usually so low-key that that was, that was surprising. Ryan Burton was sloppy at times earlier on. Managed to reel himself back into things. He had a goal himself pushing forward. One of the better forward-pushing defenders in the league, I would say, actually. 24 disposals, 8 marks, 459 meters gained for him. And for all these guys that we're mentioning for Port, and in this whole game, the meters gained are mostly, if not fully, functional. Alir Alir from the back. 23 disposals, 11 intercept possessions, 11 marks. If you were wondering where his All-Australian form was earlier on, it's here again. I was really impressed by not just the interceptability, but the way he's able to quickly dispose of the ball under pressure. That one tackle by Guthrie was really the exception there. And that was more a great play by Guthrie than anything O'Lear did wrong. But that part of O'Lear's game is another reason why you still do get an incomplete picture even when these stats are impressive. You know, there probably aren't that many people other than guys who play in defense themselves that go back and look at defensive players' highlights. But I definitely say go find yourself an Alir Alir reel if there's a good one out there. There probably is considering he was an All-Australian last year. Charlie Dixon, 2-2. I guess he did that to match the number on his back, though he had one more disposal than his jumper number with 23. 12 score involvements and 7 marks, that do-it-all ruck forward that we know he can be. Another solid game for Connor Rosie, a behind 21 disposals, 7 marks, and 7 tackles. Sam Powell Pepper, 2-1 on 19 disposals with 7 marks and gaining 457 meters. And Willem Drew, we know he can be a solid tagger, didn't have a strong one in this one, but still has tackling on display, had 8 tackles. Team stats of note. Inside 50s were plus 10 to port, 59 to 49, so power fans are probably feeling pretty hollow when they're looking at that and realizing the greater quality of opportunities they had. Geelong dominated in the hit-out department, even with Reese Stanley going down 47 to 19. Clearances were much more even, so you could really look at the kicking efficiency inside 50, those last connections, as something that brought port down in this one. They're still an extremely talented side, and this offseason should be a very interesting one for them. Between the status of Ken Hinckley, he is under contract for one more year. We're going to see with Carl Ammon likely on the move, who may want to come home. They'll once again be something to watch in that regard, and hopefully next year as well, because at this point you do have to just look to next year for him in all likelihood. They're down at 8-10. and 10. No, they're not completely done yet because they're only two wins out, but... They'll be hard-pressed to make that up at this point. 
Cork fans were crying about some of the free kicks Geelong were given early and the late one to Hawkins, but it ended up just being a 20-17 to edge in free kicks for the Cats. I don't think officiating was what decided this game. If you want to look at one specific play, that Burton turnover at the end of the first half, he could have let the clock run out. He could have done so many different things there. Kick it to nobody. Do anything except give it right to Isaac Smith. It was the one thing he absolutely couldn't do there. If you just bomb it long there, the time's probably going to run out before Geelong can make anything meaningful on it, even if you do get a deliberate call. Carl Amon also set up Max Holmes for Geelong's first goal. So that's two goals that the Cats absolutely should not have scored. They won by 12. Ta-da! As we mentioned earlier, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You can find me on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. You can find Grind Harambe the Footy Cat somewhere in this house right now. I think he's just hanging around outside the room. He's very much enjoying exploring what this room is like with the inner workings of Ethan's bed exposed. Maybe Grind's dad, that being Ethan, will post some of those interesting moments on Instagram at catnamedgrind. And don't forget, you can support this podcast via Anchor. Both games to round out the Saturday slate were appealing matchups on paper. They were staggered by 15 minutes. You were in charge of the Q-Clash, which I hardly watched any of because it started before the Geelong game ended, and then I had a grand final rematch to watch. So I'm going to let you take the reins on this one, but I'm just going to give the score. Brisbane 16-14-110, defeating Gold Coast 14-9-93. Gold Coast, like Port Adelaide, now at 8-10. A long shot to make the finals. They were already a long shot after the loss to the Bombers last week. I think, and I know you've said this as well, this is the sort of game that can really help the Q Clash get up to the level of the other the other interstate rivalries outside of Victoria, which I really hope it can. Unfortunately, a lot of empty seats at the Gabba, only 21,000 turned out. But there was a section full of people dressed as stormtroopers because apparently that's something that happens at the Gabba for cricket. I think from what I can tell, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like nonsense costumes are like a very common thing at cricket. You see it every now and then at baseball games, but it seems like much more of a coordinated group thing at cricket matches. I can understand why, especially in test cricket with how those things drag out, that you might need to create your own fun at times. Cricket is a fascinating sport and one that I can definitely comprehend much better now than I could a couple years ago. But in terms of the Q-Clash itself, this is the closest Q-Clash in four years. And from that alone, that's a big improvement. And it really looked like Gold Coast had the upper hand of this one for a lot of it. I'd say definitely through the middle quarters. Some exciting moments early. Joe Danaher scored the opening goal on what clearly was a pass. And I just thought that this game was going to end up being a weird one after that. And in a lot of respects, it was. It was great to see Elijah Hollins finally make his debut for the Suns and join the first kick, first goal club, joining teammate Ace Oya from three rounds ago and also and also joining Judd Clark, Jai Amis, and Jack Carroll from earlier in this year in reverse order. I didn't realize it was as common as it was for that to happen. Hollins was a player I was looking at a lot because he was just involved in the action a lot. He was unfortunately the victim of a commentator's curse in the earlier part of the second quarter when he intercepted a centering kick from Locking Neal. 
And then Joe Danaher promptly smothered Holland's own kick and crumbed in gold. The Suns were able to keep things together, scored the next two goals with Holland's involved again. The Suns had a three-goal run shortly after where they took the lead thanks to strong marking from Levi Caspold. The Suns led this game at the half by a goal, 51-45. to There were a lot of times in the third quarter where it looked like they were going to be able to punch out the margin a bit further, but Brisbane were able to claw things back. The lead switched back and forth a number of times right at the end of the third quarter. After Jared Lyons had set up Zach Bailey, Jack Lacocious hit Mavier Chol out of the center circle to make it a seven-point game at three-quarter time. Lacocious had been in the spotlight for a couple of poor plays and kicks the week prior and was definitely a more solid kick. And this one had a really nifty kick off the ground that actually set up David Swallow in the second quarter. Swallow came into focus in this game because he was working on Lockie Neal at stoppages, but then played more freely from there. And I'm not sure what kind of impact that immediate matchup had as well, because Neal had a clearance heavy day himself. More than anything, though, this game ended up turning from a coaching adjustment from Chris Fagan in the fourth quarter when he started getting the lines to get numbers closer to the ball, to pressure more directly in the forward 50. Brisbane's tackling went up. Their pressure gauge went up. I forget how high the broadcasters on Fox said it was, but it was somewhere very respectable in the 200s. Unfortunately, they did lose Daniel Rich after he copped Levi Casbolt's knee to his head when he was going to ground level for the ball. I was worried about how they were going to be able to adjust after that, but they were already up a goal. Lincoln McCarthy helped extend it, adjusting a kick really nicely to set up Reese Matheson in the right-hand pocket. McCarthy's kicking is definitely something I've really been focusing on in my viewings of the Brisbane Lions this past month. The Lions ended up getting five goals in a row. Would have been the last five had Isaac Rankin not kicked one right on the siren to close the game at a margin of 16 points. But they stepped up and pressured when they needed to. Brandon Starsevich did a solid job actually limiting Isaac Rankin for most of the contest and Kalamachi played really solidly as an intercepting defender. He's someone that had struggled to keep his spot at times, but definitely showed his worth in this game. Weirdly, Tuke Miller ended up winning the Marcus Ashcroft medal in a losing effort, despite a quiet fourth quarter. I thought that the job Jared Berry did on him would prevent Miller from winning the medal, but maybe the votes were submitted a little early in that regard. But Barry had a very nice game as well. Just between Jared and Sam, it was a good defensive day for players with the surname Barry. And overall, the Lions were superior on the ground, and they managed to really capitalize on that in the fourth. Getting those greater numbers into the forward 50 just allowed them to pounce on those ground balls even faster. And also, those adjustments neutralized the impact of Gold Coast limiting some of Brisbane's marking work, which tends to be one of their stronger suits. So good job from Stuart Dew on that front, and good job from Chris Fagan for responding to that when he had to. Again, I was watching this game just kind of in the background very loosely. The two things that I really picked up, and I'm going to go back and watch this game more thoroughly just for personal entertainment, but it seemed like it was Brisbane's team effort outdoing Gold Coast's best players, with the additions of some guys like Hollins and Lukosius stepping up. Gold Coast needs far more guys like Hollins, that's the thing. And that's what they're going to need to do to get to their next step. Unfortunate that Hollins' debuting came at Ace's expense because he ended up being omitted. And it just seemed like even though the Suns led for 
the bulk of this game. They were never in position to pull away. And the Lions had them where they wanted them. They've had a couple games like this. I think back to round one against Port Adelaide, where they trailed for a while, but never looked like they were seriously out of it, and then got their shit together when they needed to. I just question the sustainability of a team that's able to win games like that, but you got Brisbane doing that, you had Geelong doing that sometimes, uh, you had Collingwood doing that the next day. I was waiting for Gold Coast to really put their stamp on this game, and they just couldn't. But they have the time to learn how to win. I still think this is the type of loss that the Suns should be, you know, should be experiencing in their progression, unlike against Essendon when they just got flattened all over the place. As for who I thought deserved the Marcus Ashcroft medal, there were a lot of players that I deemed to be in contention. I probably would have ended up just going with Lockie Neal for his 10 clearance, 32 disposal performance, with a lot of this game being determined by play on the ground. Those clearance gets from Neal were extremely valuable. Additionally, Hugh McCluggage continuing a good run of games, kicking 1-1 on 25 disposals with 8 marks. Zach Bailey had a goal from 24 disposals, had been quiet for a couple weeks. Good to see him more involved again. Three goal games for both Charlie Cameron and Joe Danaher. Cameron kicking 3-1 and also with 8 tackles. Joe Danaher kicking 3-4. I mentioned Kalamachi earlier, had a goal and 10 intercepts. Was hoping that he'd get more recognition in terms of the Ashcroft votes, but didn't happen. For those interested, Tug Miller earned seven votes, Lockie Neal six, Hugh McCluggage three, and Noah Anderson two. Miller with 34 disposals, 10 score involvements, seven tackles, 604 meters gained. Anderson, nice bounce back after struggling some in that Essendon loss, 31 disposals, eight score involvements, 642 meters. Brandon Ellis, two goals, 29 disposals, 448 meters. Rory Atkins, 21 disposals and 473 meters. Jared Witz, 14 disposals, seven tackles and 50 hitouts. And that was against Oscar McInerney, mind you. McInerney only managed 19. I thought hitouts would be a lot closer, but the Lions did still manage to win clearances 44 to 35. It's another case where hitouts don't determine a lot of the story in terms of the flow of play. Hitouts to advantage a much more illuminating stat, though the clearance count ultimately says a lot more. Do you remember the 21st night of September? A couple months ago, I forget which round it was after, but I said the Bulldogs need to stop throwing Jamari Eubelhagen between the AFL and VFL and just have him ride it out at one level. Either have him play AFL and deal with some struggles or have him play VFL unless he really forces the issue. Well, Jamara forced the issue after having not played round 7-13 to 13 in the big time. He's been in since round 14. Last round against St. Kilda, he kicked three and definitely emerged. And this round, even with Aaron Naughton back in, even with Josh Bruce getting his land legs back, the Bulldogs game against Melbourne was the Jamara Hagen show. And it's definitely the first game where he lived up to that top pick status, that matching Adelaide's bid for him status. The Bulldogs, behind a 5-goal to 1 fourth quarter, beat the Demons 17-8-1-10 to 15-10-100 before a crowd of only 26,500. I was hoping for a better turnout, but it was loud in there, especially when Eugle Hagen put the exclamation point on, scoring from 53 meters out with 5 seconds left. The game had been decided, but it was a pretty awesome way to punctuate a mammoth performance. You know, when I've been referring to him kind of getting yanked back and forth, 
I had been thinking of how that's hindered development of a lot of baseball players, thinking especially back to the way the Baltimore Orioles did that with Kevin Gosman, who since leaving the Orioles has blossomed into a guy making more than $20 million a year and deservedly so. But more than that, this game was one of the first times the Bulldogs have really busted a couple of my preconceived notions about them. Specifically, I thought of them as a team that has to win team-based matchups instead of one-on-ones, and they did pretty well in some one-on-one battles here. Specifically, from boundary throw-ins, Aaron Naughton was actually able to body up to Max Gone, which was not something I expected. I thought Tim English would be the only one who could do that. And I thought this was a team who was very top-heavy but didn't have the depth. You know, those guys that are kind of between, like, the 20th and 30th players on their list, to the point where anytime someone went down injured, it was really hard for the team to find a way to make up for that production. And they got some big depth performances in this game, specifically from the guy who ended up scoring what proved to be the game-winning goal, Riley Garcia. I thought he was awesome, and that's the sort of performance that they need to be able to get to the next level. Oh yeah, and clearly this is a game that mattered to the Bulldogs, considering how they finished it off. I was waiting for you to say that. They trailed 70-43 to with eight minutes left in the second quarter after Bailey Fritch's fourth goal. I thought this game was done. They did cut it to 15 by halftime, but Alex Keith gave up a pretty foolish 50-meter penalty for a late hit on Jake Melksham. Stretching the lead back to 21 early in the third. But Trelaw, English, and Naughton all scored goals to cut the lead down to one. The Demons went back up by 12 off of goals from James Harms and Sam Wiedemann. Nice game from Wiedemann, who got in with Ben Brown on the shelf for what was just listed as soreness. Though the next day he did chip in on the 7 VFL broadcast. Might have to use Watch AFL to try to find some of that. Would like to see how he did in the booth. Hugel Hagen got his third early in the fourth, but Tazi Pickett leaked out of the pack with 15-11 left. And at that point, not only did Melbourne lead 97-84, we've seen what a Pickett goal does to energize that team. And I thought, all right, they're probably going to get another goal or two here, and that's going to be it. They didn't score another goal. The Bulldogs outscored them 26-3 the rest of the way. Hugel Hagen got his fourth. Stephen May had a rare bad turnover with a bit of a lazy kick towards Christian Petraka that Bonham Pelly was able to intercept, leading to a Jack McRae goal. McRae got way better as this game went on. He wasn't directly responsible for the Bulldogs turning around clearances in the second half. That was more Bontempelli and Tom Libertore. Big surprise there. But McRae got meaningful possessions off those clearances, and he was just as big a reason, if not a bigger reason, why the game turned in the dog's favor through the middle. Mind you, by this point, Adam Trelore, who had been the Bulldogs' top player to this point, got subbed out. He got officially taken out with about maybe 15 minutes left. Calf tightness being the word there. The play that all but sealed this game was a bottom penalty tackle on Gone off a throw-in with a minute 14 left. Eugle Hagen was awarded a free kick when Harrison Petty leapt into him with about 48 seconds left. And then Jamara got the exclamation point goal. Not that the Ds would have had enough time, even if they had won the ball back at the edge of their own 50 with maybe 15 seconds left. Nonetheless, massive win for the Bulldogs, who now sit in eighth, two points clear of 10th place Richmond, and ahead of 9th place St. Hilda by 8.3%. Couple of big takeaways from this game, aside from not in handling gone one-on-one in the forward 50, Hugel Hagen playing so well, and Garcia stepping up. I thought Melbourne's depth pieces, for the most part, had pretty good games. Neil Bolin, Wiedemann, 
I love Charlie Spargo's game. I think he kind of links up to everyone else really nicely and just understands his assignment really well. Seems like a lot of discourse in the AFL Twitter world, at least, has gone against him, actually, maybe with the game going away from him more in the second half. His impact was lessened there. I did like what I saw from Spargo in the first half in particular. The one guy that I really saw as a bit of a weak link for the Demons was Michael Hibbert defensively. I think he's the sort of guy who can lose out on a spot, whether that be Jake Bowie getting back in. Jake Lever was a laid out for Adam Tomlinson when Lever gets back from his shoulder injury. I think Tomlinson belongs in. I think Hibbert should be the one to lose out on the spot there, at least based off of recent performance. Also, not Tom Libertori's best game, but he stepped up down the stretch as a physical tackler like him so often does. Just a super fun back-and-forth game. Big swings each way. The Demons now sit at 13-5. and five. There are three teams at 13-5. and five. They do have the best percentage there. 3.3 ahead of Brisbane and more than 20 percentage points ahead of Collingwood. But look, they've hit a bit of a skid as of late. They've now lost two out of three. And I just don't think they're as smooth and crisp and unflappable as they've been at times. You know, Stephen May is still a damn good player, but... He hasn't quite been the same since the incident. And they're just more mistake-prone than they were. It's not like they're beating themselves, but they're making enough mistakes that you don't have to be flawless to beat them. They're leaving doors open for good teams. And the Bulldogs capitalized. So you're saying that if Stephen May played like this, they would have lost the grand final? Possibly. On the other hand, ironically, I've really liked how Jake Melchin has played lately. Did you expect that from me? No. (laughs) I will note, I still love the D's body language out of this. Bailey Fritch was walking away from that game knowing, we got beat by a team that played a hell of a game. We're still good. And that confidence they've shown, I think, is a really good thing. I don't think it's complacency. I think they know how good they can be, and it's just a matter of channeling it. They've been there before, only they're really going to have to channel it because their last four are at Fremantle versus Collingwood and Carlton, and then at the Gabba. I also want to note, while May has stepped back a bit lately, Christian Salem's been damn good ever since he got back from his injury, and he might actually be their best defender, at least in the immediate moment. The opinion on Salem has been divided as of late. I thought he was all right in this one, but that their back line needed a bit of a wake-up call in general, and hopefully Melksham provides that. A lot of Bulldogs with... Big game stat-wise, seven guys with between 24 and 29 disposals. Jack McRae, a goal, 29 disposals. Bailey Smith had 28, a behind, nine score involvements, 478 meters gained. Adam Trelor, before getting subbed out, remember, he really didn't play the fourth quarter at all. A goal, 28 disposals, 479 meters gained. He was a monster. He might still get the three votes, although... I would think it would go to Hugo Hagen for the five goal, six mark performance. And honestly, I'm thinking that Trelore being off the field late may make the umpires forget about the impact he had as much. Hopefully he still gets at least one vote from this. Bailey Dale, a behind 27 disposals, seven intercepts, 551 meters gained. Marcus Bonapelli, a goal, two behinds, 26 disposals, 10 clearances, nine tackles, 461 meters gained. He did everything except for sell pies and sweep the floor after. Josh Dunkley a behind in 24 disposals. And Richards a pretty good game. Remember, they're still without Caleb Daniel. Richards, 24 disposals, 9 intercepts, and 8 marks. Tim English, 2 goals, 20 disposals, 10 marks, and 7 intercepts, including 
six intercept marks. And the fact that Naughton was doing so well one-on-one versus Gone meant that he enabled English to do a whole lot of roving work. And remember, English trained as a midfielder for most of his time in youth and junior footy until he had a big growth spurt. So that ability has been with him the whole way. So if you've got someone like Naughton or potential trade target Rory Lobb to relieve English of his ruck work, then his versatility could translate into so much for them week in and week out. For the D's, the most notable stats start with Angus Brayshaw. 29 disposals, 11 intercepts, 11 marks, and 565 meters gained. To think that he is the less prominent Brayshaw this year compared to his younger brother is kind of insane. With the work rate and stat hauls he's put up, Unsurprisingly, an active game for Clayton Oliver, 28 disposals and 13 clearances. Max Gawna behind, 25 disposals, 8 marks and 40 hitouts, part of Melbourne being plus 29 in hitouts. Thing is, it was Bulldogs plus 7 in clearances, and they really made that happen in stoppages where they were plus 14. In terms of goal kicking, Kazi Pickett 2-2 and Bailey Fritch 4-1 with 10 score involvements. Fritch has always been someone who could find the goal, but the fact that he's been getting more involved in other players' goals as of late is a sign of strong continuing development for him. But at the end of this one, at the end of Saturday, I was just so impressed with what the Bulldogs were able to accomplish, and not just because their backs were against the wall, but because they did it in so many individual matchups and with so many lesser known or at least lesser recognized pieces being part of the overall story. With the way the Sunday schedule works, typically whoever covers the first game gets the last game and the other one of us gets the middle game. And since the last game involved the Eagles, that meant I got the middle game. You had the two bookends and I got the really good one, although the two you were on did have some interesting elements to them. So why don't you talk about that? Start us off with Carlton's 36 point win over the Giants. Yeah, you ended up getting just the insane games this round, but I like the games that I ended up with. You were, of course, watching a lot of this first game because it started more than two hours ahead of Collingwood and Essendon, and I was catching up on this one somewhat, again, with the same reasons as the previous time. Coming back from Eugene, etc., my impression, just kind of following the flow of the game, was that it was decently back and forth throughout the first half, and the score reflected that, with it just being a three-point difference at the main break. I had a lot of concerns about whether the Giants were going to be able to compete in this one because Tom Green and Jesse Hogan were managed. Yes, they wanted to make sure they managed Green after a game in Canberra so that he could please his fan club by playing. And also, they were playing a really, really tall back line when that hasn't been their thing all year. Lachlan Keith spending a decent amount of time back there at 6'8". The Giants ended up with five of the first six inside 50s. They capitalized on Carlton not pressuring well early on. A couple of impressive plays there, including Stephen Cornelio's running goal to open the scoring and Toby Green leaving the atmosphere for a mark against Lewis Young, one of two really strong marks in this game. But Carlton's pressure switch clearly flipped after that. They had multiple runs of a couple of goals in a row. Matthew Cottrell got involved with two goals in the middle of the second quarter, and the Giants couldn't instantly respond, but ended up getting the next couple goals to reel it back into a three-point game at halftime. But that was when Carlton managed to really turn things their way, start playing their best. It felt like it was a lot more than four goals to two in the third quarter. Just the overall flow of the game really favored them. Unfortunately, Callum Brown had a pretty big error 
with the Giants where he couldn't mark Sam Walsh's kick into the goal square and Josh Honey capitalized on that. Walsh was actually victim to a pretty nasty rolled ankle near the end of the first half. I had cued you guys into that talk about rolled ankles earlier, but he ended up coming back in in the middle of the third quarter and looked like he hadn't missed a beat. I don't know what they had done to him, but his impact in contests cannot be understated. And he definitely helped stabilize things for the Blues and firmly tilt this game into their favor. Overall, a quieter fourth quarter where more than anything, the Giants ended up looking out of gas. And that makes sense with the young group they have, the fast pace with which they like to play. Pacing is definitely something that the Giants will have to learn, regardless of whether or not Mark McVay is around after this year. And I'm not exactly sure what this kind of game does to his prospects, where they were in it for more than half of it, but lost their way in the second half and never were able to put things back together. Perhaps his cause is helped by the players that were managed. I'm not sure, you know, how much of a say he had in that versus the list manager, how much authority a caretaker coach has in that regard. But once Carlton began to pressure in the middle of the first quarter, the game was largely theirs. Adam Sott did pretty much everything right in this game, aside from just nonsensically bouncing well ahead of going 15 meters on the ground. And I really like Charlie Kernow's positioning in this game, was just getting in the right places on the ground, whether it was to lead well, to marks, to get open space, or just be in the right place in terms of packs. There was one goal, the last goal in the first quarter, where there was a big pack into which Tom DeConing chipped, but Kernow expected it to come out the back, and it did. He was wise to not go up into it himself. It's small plays like that that have begun to really impress me in terms of not only him, but a lot of key forwards in understanding why they're so important beyond just being marking targets. have to think that the Blues did miss a bit of an opportunity to grow their percentage out further with some of the kicks that they missed and the control of play that they had throughout the second half. And yeah, a win's a win, but they could have definitely eaten into that more than 6% margin between them and the Sydney Swans. And there's a big difference between 6th and 7th. This was an opponent where the Blues could afford to get off to a slow start and ended up just fine. Love the game out of Charlie Carnow. He's not just hunting for goals. He's making himself valuable all over the ground. And another game where Adam Saad shows just how valuable he is. The combination of him and Sam Doherty make it really easy for the Blues to move the ball out of their own 50. And it's really why they've been so good offensively. And both have been accurate kicks out of the back half as well. Sod had some really pinpoint kicks that helped get the Blues loose and a couple times led directly to goals. They're able to get the ball out of their back half cleanly and get it up to their efficient midfield and strong forwards. And I think it's a super underrated part of their game that isn't getting enough credit because it's so easy to focus on the excellence that you see out of guys like Kernow and Walsh. Well, let's start looking at the stats with Adam Sod and Sam Doherty then. Saad with 25 disposals, 12 marks, 8 intercepts, and 581 meters, which probably meant he took 614 bounces. Doherty, 26 disposals, 10 marks, 8 score involvements, and 7 intercepts. Additionally, on the defensive side of things, Lockie Plowman's 10 intercepts were part of a solid 1v1 matchup game for him. Going further upfield, Matthew Ketney with a behind and 27 disposals. Adam Chira also with 27, also had 6 tackles. Sam Walsh, despite missing that chunk of time, 31 disposals, 7 clearances, and 7 score involvements. 
And Patrick Cripps, even though he hasn't been as dominant the last couple weeks, still managed 1-2 on 34 disposals and 6 marks. I had been pretty underwhelmed by Cripps the last few weeks. It was nice for him to get back into the swing of things. Though it's also good that he doesn't have to be that takeover guy for the Blues to do well. And hey, look, Carlton have guaranteed themselves their first winning season since 2011, making strides under Michael Voss well before people expected them to. In terms of some of the forward work, Will Setterfield spent a decent amount of time in the forward third, had 1-1 one, one on 24 disposals, 8 marks, and 9 score involvements. His goal was a pretty ridiculous one early on, where I'm not sure how exactly he got the angle of kick that he did. We talk about ugly geometry with nasty unintentional collisions. This was beautiful geometry. Harry Mackay, 2-3 on 15 disposals, 10 marks, and 10 score involvements. Charlie Kernow, the high goal scorer, with 4 goals and a behind, 18 touches, 10 marks, and 9 score involvements. And Carlson overall were very efficient with the ball in hand, 77.6 disposal efficiency overall, and 55.4% efficiency inside 50. For the Giants, Tim Taranto, another nice game, 30 disposals, 8 marks, and 6 clearances. Harry Himmelberg, 25 disposals, 10 intercepts, 7 marks, 617 meters gained. Probably Xavier O'Halloran's best performance of the year, 23 disposals, 6 intercepts, 493 meters gained. And Callum Brown playing in a more defensive role this time, despite being listed at half forward, he finished with 10 intercepts. Relatively solid in that spot and showcasing versatility for a player with a clear offensive touch in a limited amount of time. He's had at AFL level, that one fumble he had that led to the honey goal stands out in terms of momentum more than anything else. They can't keep getting away with this, I said, as Collingwood got away with it yet again. You got the crazy games this round, didn't you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Hugh Clash was definitely not boring by any means, but it was decided well ahead of the final few minutes. And I mean, this game wasn't decided until... After the final minute. The third after the siren goal of the season and the second in three weeks with more than 72,000 on hand to see Jamie Elliott's kick after the siren give the Pies their ninth win in a row, their third straight win by seven or fewer. Their last four games have now been decided by seven points or fewer, including three by less than a goal. They've got five wins by less than a goal on the season and... This really never looked like a game that was going to come down to this the way things started off. Collingwood leading 38-1 to behind a three-goal first quarter from Ash Johnson playing in the second career game. The Bonners started to settle in. Will Snelling playing probably his best game of the year. They got the lead down to 13 by halftime. Then after scoring 33 points in the first half, more than doubled that with a 34-7 to third quarter, taking a 14-point lead into the final frame. Basically, they just had the same output as the second quarter. They took the lead on a Kyle Langford goal with a little under 12 minutes left in the quarter. Brody Majacek tied it back up off an end-to-end sequence, but a Langford behind and Stringer goal put the Bombers back up by seven. They led by 14 to close the quarter after Sam Draper took a pack mark and managed to wrap it around the post. Story kick that big guys aren't supposed to be able to execute. John Noble, who didn't have a very good game at all, gave Matt Guelphy a dumb free kick. That brought the lead to 20, and it seemed like at that point, all right, it's not over, but the Bombers are in pretty good shape. One more goal, and this will be put to bed, and they never got that one more goal. Sam Durham missed to the right on a kick that really would have sealed it, would have brought the lead to 25 after his team went downfield on just three kicks. 
Then Jack Crisp really started to get going. I loved his movement throughout this game. He didn't have the huge stat haul that he often does. 23 disposals and 7 score involvements. But he was just so in sync with everybody. And that really became prominent as the Pies engineered one of the comebacks for the ages. He started a sequence that led to injury sub Josh Carmichael scoring. Carmichael came in to replace Braden Maynard, who had a shoulder injury. Then a Scott Pendlebury interception led to Ash Johnson feeding Elliott. That cut the lead to eight with 9.48 to go. Essendon would have gotten right back into the forward 50 off of a center clearance, but Isaac Quainer came up with his biggest intercept of the day on a day where there weren't that many intercepts or impressive numbers defensively at all. And remember, Quainer was in COVID protocols last week. Then Brody Majacek delivered an insane tackle on Braden Ham, one of the best clean tackles I've seen in a while. Pendlebury set up Carmichael, and all of a sudden it was three goals in three and a half minutes. The Pies trailed by just two, and then from there, Essendon were suddenly very inefficient when they would get inside 50. Ash Johnson had a chance to give the Pies a lead, but missed from the left with 4.09 to go, making it a one-point game, and... Then at this point, Essendon decided to just play not to lose from way too early. It seemed like the walls were going to cave in on them. And yet, even with that, they had a chance to put this game away because Jeremy Howe slipped, got tackled by Harry Jones in his own 50. Jones had a chance to put the game away and hit the post with 45 seconds left, making it a two-point game. At this point, Collingwood still needed to go the entire length of the ground and kick a goal and... They did. In fact, they got down the ground in less than 20 seconds and in just three kicks because Essendon were not set up at all to play this. Watching first crack a few hours afterwards, David King was really ripping Essendon's defensive setup or lack thereof on this sequence where you're supposed to prepare as if your teammate's going to miss this kick. And instead, they were all just getting ready to congratulate Jones on finishing the game. Instead, Trent Bianco had way too much room to run. He found Elliott on the left side with just about 30 seconds left, and he scored right after the siren to win the game. Collingwood's first after the siren win since Chris Tarrant in 2003, their ninth win in a row. They have entered the top four, two points ahead of Fremantle, nearly 20 percentage points behind the Lions, and more than 22 behind the Ds, but even with them on points with a 13-5 record. Collingwood 12-8-80 defeats Essendon 11-10-76. From a Bombers standpoint, I look at this two ways. On one hand, they overcame a shit first quarter and put themselves in a position to win against a very good team. On the other hand, they played not to lose way too early and then really had no defensive setup or situational awareness, whereas Collingwood every week, pretty much every day, is practicing situations with the time and score, like a good basketball team would, like a good football team would. If there are any people out there who are both Essendon and San Jose Sharks fans, I would be shocked if there are any, unless former Oakland A's pitcher Travis Blackley secretly has some ice hockey leanings, but I can only imagine how furious they are. As Sharks fans, we are very used to, as Sharks fans, we have been very used to the past few coaches trying to shut down things way early on playing not to lose, as you said, and has led to way too many overtime situations and just plain losses in general. And playing not to lose means that just one big mistake, one big individual or team fuck up 
can undo everything. And uh, yeah, that was a pretty big fuck up. And it looked like a set play for Collingwood that they had going down that weaker side like that. They had most of the numbers on the right-hand side looking from their defensive goal square, and they went down the left with pretty much no resistance. In addition, how did neither of the Essendon players who were right there contest that mark really at all? They were caught as unaware as anyone on the oval. The other thing I didn't like from Essendon was how positive Rutten was in his post-game presser. Well, I think if you want to take the holistic view of this game, there are things to be positive about, but you lost a winnable game. The good news is they're not in a position where they're fighting for a final spot, so they can look at this as just a learning experience. And I've said from the start, and I've seen a couple other commentators start to come around on this as well, you're not going to be able to really fully evaluate Essendon until sometime in the middle of next year, when it's year three of the Ben Rutten era, and a chance to really figure out what they're going to be under it. That said, I'd like to see more situational awareness from the Bombers moving forward. I'd like to think this is a lesson they won't forget. Honestly, not a whole lot of big stats for this one. Some individual highlights to be sure, but overall, this game flowed from team to team rather than from player to player. Taylor Adams had the most possessions for Collingwood with 28, had seven clearances as well. Still not as discriminant as we'd like with his kicks, but starting to get there. You already mentioned Jack Crisp with his 23 disposals and seven score involvements. Jeremy Howe, 20 disposals, nine marks, eight intercepts, and one key error, which ended up not mattering in the end. I don't know what he needs to buy Jamie Elliott for bailing him out there. And Josh Dacos with 19 disposals, five clearances, 475 meters gained, and potentially the goal of the year. More on that at the end of the episode. He played a monster first quarter. Him and Ash Johnson were really the reasons Collingwood got out to that big lead. Big stat hauls for Essendon. Zach Merritt, 38 disposals, 9 clearances, 630 meters gained. Dylan Sheila behind, 30 disposals, 503 meters. Dyson Heppel, 26 disposals and 11 marks. Sam Durham behind, 23 disposals, 10 marks. Will Snelling, definitely his best game of the year, 20 disposals and 8 tackles. The Bombers won clearances 41-26, to including 28-17 to from stoppages. One other stat of note, Collingwood only used 62 of their 75 interchanges. And it worked. Don't really have much more to read into that. Probably would ask a lot more questions if the result went against them. My assumption is that they got to the point where McRae just said, all right, we've got to have these 18 on the ground, even if they're tired. To finish off, Highs have Port Adelaide, Melbourne, they travel to Sydney, and then they face Carlton. So three of their final four at the MCG, all eyes will be on them to see if they can end up maintaining this form, winning more tight games, and cracking the top four. On AFL 360, they said, Collingwood is the second favorite team of nobody. But I tell you what, the respect for Collingwood is immense at the moment. I think that sums it up nicely. I also think whether they're winning or losing, it's good for Collingwood to be playing in dramatic games because they're going to get national TV time. They're going to be front and center. They get headlines no matter how they fare. They get big crowds because of their large fan base and because everyone wants to beat them. Collingwood and Carlton in round 23 has the potential to be maybe the largest home and away crowd ever. You could really see 
a double chance riding on that game. And hopefully they draw well in their three games before that as well. They ought to sell out round 22 at the SCG with how both those teams have gone this year. One last thing of note for Essendon, they certainly left it all out there. Mason Redmond had a massive smother in the fourth quarter that led to him suffering some internal bleeding. He had to go to the hospital following the game. By the way, it's the hospital, not just going to hospital. The hospital is a place. It is a specific building. You go to the hospital. Get it right. Honestly, if you're saying like going to hospital almost sounds like hospital's a club. You're not seeing Calvin Harris. You're getting checked out medically. Final game of the round. One of the more interesting score lines I've seen. West Coast 10-262 defeated by St. Kilda 14-690. Obviously, this was your game. I will mention quickly before you take over. Marcus Windhager was awesome as a tagger on Tim Kelly, and both teams had some moments where the poor conditions on the ground, a combination of having Manchester United play Aston Villa the night before there, and a week's worth of rain, it affected both teams pretty equally. I liked what Adam Simpson said when he was asked about it after. He said it didn't decide the game, and the ground crew actually did a pretty good job with it, all things considered. Brett Ratton, however, was less pleased about it mentioned potential for lawsuits if there are damaging enough injuries, aside a couple cases from maybe a decade or so ago at other grounds. I do have massive respect for grounds crews trying to navigate between sports like that. Again, as Oakland Athletics fans, we were very used to that because they shared the stadium with the Raiders for a couple two-plus decade stints, and the grounds crew there tended to do a very nice job. Also, just compare this to what AFL grounds and VFL grounds looked like in bad weather some 20, 30 years ago. Like, seeing old Jason Dumpstall highlights, I mean, they were basically playing on mud. This is like the sort of stuff that NFL teams would play on in, like, the 1950s. I'm amazed how long it took Australia to catch up on playing surfaces because they've been at or ahead of the game compared to the U.S. in a lot of things for a long time. Decent playing surfaces in bad conditions have been a very recent development in Australia. The scoring line in this one is really interesting. The Eagles have been kicking accurately pretty reliably for a lot of the season. Remember, in their first win, they kicked 14-3. The big problem with the Eagles is that they were terribly inefficient inside 50. Once they managed to get the ball to a place where they were comfortable kicking or once they got set shots, they made them count, but... Their disposal efficiency inside their forward 50 was 27.7%. It's bad enough when it drops into the 30s. I haven't used the word deplorable in a while. That is deplorable efficiency or just a complete lack thereof. St. Kilda, meanwhile, were at 41.5%. Not great, but not terrible. I'd say around a 3.6 run get there. 3.6. Not great, not terrible. I expected this to be a bit of a weird contest at stoppages because... Nick Nanui was out, Patty Ryder was out and likely done for the season, so you had Josh Rotham and Jared Lehner as the backup rocks, but Rotham pushed forward this game a reasonable amount and kicked two goals, his first two AFL goals. Not sure why it took this long for Adam Simpson to try it out. We already knew coming in that Kelly struggled against the tag. He had not done well against Finn McGinnis last week, and Marcus Windhager completely outdid him in this contest, limiting him to just four possessions. That's a very good job on Windhager, and 
Had it not been for Yubel Hagen doing what he did this round, I would think that he would have stood a good chance to be the Rising Star nominee. Because prior to the past couple weeks, Kelly had been one of West Coast's most important pieces as they had been able to turn their form around. It was good that the Eagles managed to do what they could without him. We were seeing a bit more from some of their newer pieces, though. Bailey Williams, not to be confused with the one for the Bulldogs. It's not a Harry and Ben McKay situation where you don't know if there's actually just one of them because the two Baileys Williams have, I believe, played against each other. But West Coast Williams managed to kick a goal and had a lot of rough time in this one. Bit of a tough learning experience against Rowan Marshall, but it was more than necessary with not just Nan Nui, actually, but also Callum Jameson out. And you got to learn the hard way sometimes. Along with Williams and Rotham, Jai Cully continued his solid work. In his second game, he was one of the Eagles' most active players. He managed to kick his first AFL goal and also had the assist of the year if that were an award. And we may create it just for him because he kicked over his head and Liam Ryan read it and marked it. That actually gave the Eagles a three-point lead in the middle of the second quarter. They had led after quarter time by five points and it had been back and forth for much of the first half until the Saints got three in a row to turn around and stretch the margin to 10 late in the second quarter. Eagles got one back and then the Saints got two more. Harry Edwards couldn't take a mark against Tim Membry and Dan Butler and Brad Crouch made the Eagles pay and then Butler kicked another one right on the halftime siren to make it five out of six goals for the Saints and extending their lead to 16. I knew after that, especially when Wynn Hager was involved in terms of taking the ball from Rowan Marshall at center bounce, just how easily they were moving through there that the game was over from there. The Eagles did have glimpses of getting back into this one. They brought it back to within three points a bit after the midpoint of the third quarter. They were turning around contests and inside 50s and some clearances in their favor, but Tim Membry stabilized things for the Saints with his 250th AFL goal off a good handball while on the deck from Jack Higgins. From the mid to late third quarter through most of the fourth, every sequence was really just being scrapped together. It was hard work getting any real traffic consistently going one way or the other. But the Saints ended up with four goals in a row through that. And that says a lot to their perseverance and being able to grind out games that hadn't necessarily been going in their favor for a decent amount of it. One goal each way to end it with Jai Coley's coming with just under two minutes to go and Dan Butler having the last say fitting on a day where he'd been a really solid piece in the forward 50. It's about what I expected from this game, a 28-point margin. St. Kilda let last kicks into the 50, let them down again. Managed to patch that up somewhat, but nothing about this game convinces me that the Saints are in that great a place to make finals, or if they can somehow make it compete if they're there. I will note, though, that Max King was showing some more versatility was doing more work up the ground in terms of marking. Imagine Ben King with a mustache and you have Max as of late. And I mean, you should be expecting that. They're identical twins. And also, I realized that Ben Long is a good pick for medical sub with the energy and on-ball work that he provides. He finished with seven tackles. But at this rate, I'm wondering, would he be more valuable in the 22 straight away? He came in relatively early in this one when Jack Billings had a lower back issue. I'm going to say he's better off as the injury sub because I just don't know if he's in their best 22. Very few players on either team had particularly big stat lines, but 
Jack Steele was awesome. 40 disposals, 10 clearances, 10 marks, 8 tackles. Brad Crouch, a goal, 31 disposals, 11 tackles. Welcome back, Seb Ross, 27 disposals. Jack Sinclair, 27 disposals and 12 interceptions. Marcus Windhager, in addition to his tagging excellence, a behind 23 disposals and 523 meters gained. And Mason Wood, a goal, a behind 21 disposals and 7 intercepts. The individuals shown, I'm just not sure if St. Kilda showed enough as a collective, whether or not that collective is autonomous. I thought we were an autonomous collective! To prove anything that we hadn't already known about him. For the Eagles, a few solid defensive efforts. Tom Barris, I believe it actually is. I'd been vacillating between that and Barras on the pronunciation, but apparently he pronounces it like the final two syllables of Embarrass. Hopefully that's correct. He unfortunately slipped late to let Dan Butler add that last goal, but solid again as a last line of defense. 26 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 8 marks. It was a good matchup between him and Max King. Would say actually that Barris ended up getting the better of that one, though it didn't end up changing the final result. Jack Redden was supporting back there. 25 disposals, 8 marks, and 8 tackles. Liam Duggan, 24 touches, 10 marks, and 9 intercepts. Bailey J. Williams, a goal, 18 disposals, and 11 clearances. And I want to finish with Jai Cully because for a lot of people, he may be the one thing that excites them enough to be willing to watch the Eagles these next few weeks. A goal, 19 disposals, and 7 tackles. More than showing why the Eagles and so many other teams were targeting him as the first midseason selection. One thing I noticed about this round outside of the first game, usually scoring goes down as the season goes on, as teams adapt to rule changes, points of emphasis from the umpires, start to scout each other out better, but this was a very offensive heavy round, and it'll be fun to follow if that's going to be a trend that continues over the final four rounds of the home and away season. Hard to believe it's that fast. We've been focusing a lot on defensive advancements this season. Maybe the wear and tear of the home and away campaign has led to some disappointments on that front, though we have seen some shining individual performers still. We had one from either Western team this past round with the aforementioned Barris and Young and others throughout the AFL, but maybe as a full defensive unit, we haven't seen that cohesion with some players being out and just a lot of matchups where the victorious teams are strong corridor runners. On to the Mark and Goal of the Week nominees, with which we close out every one of our round recaps. There weren't really any strong Mark nominees last round, but Tom Barris ended up winning it as he raced back and crashed into Will Day and his own teammate Harry Edwards to take the mark. Kind of an American football moment going back with the flight, but as those annoying pizza commercials say, nothing special. This round, you have Mitch Georgiatis leaping in the pack, gaining leverage on Todd Marshall's back to pull it down to set up a chance to tie the game, although the shot hit the post. And then two from Greater Western Sydney and Carlton, one from either team. Mentioned him already, I believe. Toby Green leaping over Lewis Young in the midfield. And then Adam Sod leaping over Jimmy Peatling with his knees going up near Peatling's shoulders. A couple really impressive, just pure hangers. Which of these three gets the edge for you? I think... Green, but all three of these are better than the three from round 18. I'm going to go Toby, just barely edging out Georgiatis. I think I'm going to go Toby as well, though I'd be more than happy to see either of these three win it all impressive in their own right in terms of just that high jumping specky factor to them that we were missing last round. 
Goal of the week for round 18 was Sam Draper. I still really love that Jeremy Cameron goal, but Draper winning the center bounce. The give-and-go handball with Matt Guelphy, fighting off Charlie Ballard with one hand and then scoring on the run. This round, there's a clear winner, and the other two I didn't even think of as nominee material. I thought perhaps Will Setterfield could have been nominated. I thought Joe Danaher's goal to start the Hugh Clash was better than a couple of these. That was a pass. Sam Draper going around the corner could have even been included over some of these. But the two that are clearly going to finish in second and third are Jamie Elliott's after the siren goal from the left boundary. I mean, tough angle, but set shot. And Jamara Hagen receiving a tap from Bailey Williams, scoring from 53 meters out with five seconds left for his fifth goal and the exclamation point on a big win. But the obvious winner here is Josh Dacos, bouncing the ball to get around Sam Durham, deking Nick Hind, retrieving the ball and scoring from near the boundary after a decent run. A two-bounce run, actually. This was an awesome play. It had everything. Faking out defenders, the shot from a difficult angle, you name it. That's your clear winner this round, and it'll be a contender for goal of the year. I still really like both Draper and Cameron's goals from last round, and that Toby Dan Curvis goal from all the way back in round two, which didn't win and I don't think was even nominated. But between the magnitude of this game, the fact that it was Collingwood, the fact that it was a day cost in particular, I have a feeling that Josh may have won himself his second car in three years. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is two Americans' thoughts on an insane round 19. Like you said, Ethan, hard to believe we're getting into the home stretch as much as we are, and that there are so many teams that are still in the mix for cracking the eight and for cracking the four in that regard to get that double chance. We'll catch you again in just a couple days with our round 20 preview, which includes Melbourne visiting Fremantle to kick off the round. The prison bars game between Port and Collingwood, the Sydney Derby, the Cats hosting the Bulldogs, the Lions trying to snap their MCG skid against the Tigers, and more. Stay tuned for all the fun. We look forward to talking with you, whether it be through you listening to this, engaging with us on Twitter, engaging with our hearts and our minds, whatever it may be, because like you, we're passionate about the game, and we just love the footy. Don't forget, you can reach us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can reach me at Castle Media. You can find my son on Instagram at Brian, And you can find me at BenjaminHK01. Thanks, Basil, and have a good day, y'all.